of Romans chapter 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Oh God, we pray that you would impress upon our hearts, from the youngest here to the oldest, the great truths that are here in your word, very plainly for us to see and meditate upon. We pray that you would take away the cares, the concerns of this world for just a few moments as we look into and gaze upon your truth. For it's in Christ's name we pray and ask. Amen. Do you ever get very confused, very discouraged, very down? And you know that phrase that God is for us, but perhaps you wonder sometimes if that is a truth for you. God is for us. Is that just for everyone else or is that for me as well? Romans 8 has long been a favorite chapter among Christians in the Bible. Romans 8 is filled with many great encouragements and truths for us to lay hold of that Paul unfolds for us. And I hope that those pages in your Bible are very well worn. That's one of the downfalls of the electronic age and the the Bible that people have on their phones. Those pages where we write notes and we wear those pages out. Uh, We don't see that as much in our digital age. But it's great for me when I say, turn in your Bibles too, and I hear pages flipping. I love that. And so I pray that that area of Scripture is well-worn for you and well-trodden, and you refer to this passage often. It's a great passage to refer to in counseling. If you're ever counseling someone and trying to encourage them, go to Romans 8. Great place for encouragement in the Word of God amongst many, many other places. And what do we see here? Well, Ferd read for us the first 30 verses that are filled with great with a great many truths, and we see there that there is no condemnation. We see that in verse 1. No condemnation to those who are united to Christ Jesus. Our union with Christ. I hope you know that doctrine very well. Union with Christ. It's a theme in the scriptures that is very, very important to us. And it is a part of the great and good news that we have in the gospel. Unity with Christ. We should know that doctrine very, very well. The indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. We see that throughout this passage here. 
And in verse 9, the adoption into God's family that we have as God's children. In verses 16 and 17, what a wonderful truth that is. Adoption into God's family. We are all unified in our Lord Jesus and adopted into the family of God. I can remember shortly after I was saved as a, as a, in my late teens and I joined a church about a year later. I didn't have a church family at all for the first year that I was, that I was a Christian. But I joined this church and I immediately discovered that though maybe I had a dysfunctional family at home, and maybe the church is dysfunctional too, but, but I had this unity of purpose and alignment with these people that I'd never known before. And all of a sudden, there was elderly people there who I didn't really know any elderly people. All of a sudden, I had elderly folks there and younger folks like me and other folks who are kind of middle-aged. And it was a wonderful truth to be able to be, to be uh, gripped by that I had a family, a church family, people that loved and read the Bible, People that loved God and wanted to serve God. And it's a great truth for us to meditate upon us. And also, of course, the future that we have in glory. We will one day be glorified saints in heaven with our Lord Jesus Christ. That he's begun a good work in us and he's going to complete that good work. And there's many, many other truths here. And after explaining so many truths to these Christians in Rome, Paul begins to ask a series of, of really rhetorical questions. That on the basis of all of this, how are you going to respond as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ? What then shall we say to these things? How are you going to be responding as a a reader and a hearer of God's word tonight to these truths? Paul wants to encourage the church at Rome and all of us to lay hold of our standing in the Lord Jesus Christ and to stand in that grace firmly that we have in him. And so he groups his logic into two main areas that might seek to threaten our security in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you ever feel threatened? Do you ever have a lack of assurance? I know it's a very common problem amongst new believers, having a lack of assurance. How do I really know that I'm saved? And of course, Satan always wants to come in, the accuser of the brethren. He always wants to rush in and put doubt in our minds. He always wants to destabilize. And so we have to be very, very careful about that. And we see here that people cannot threaten our security in the Lord Jesus Christ. We see that in 31b to 34. If God is for us, Who can be against us? Who? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God gave him up. His only son. God gave him up and gives us all things. Everything that we need. Maybe not everything that we want and desire, but everything that we need, God gives to us. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. That's a lot to unpack. Many centuries ago, John Chrysostom was brought before the Roman emperor and the Roman emperor was threatening him with physical harm and banishment. 
if he remained a Christian? And Chrysostom replied, You cannot banish me, for this world is my father's house. What a great response. But there's more. It goes on. Then I will kill you, said the emperor. No, you cannot, for my life is hid with Christ in God. I will take away all of your treasures. No, you cannot, for my treasure is in heaven, and my heart is there too. But I will drive you away from man, and you will have no friends left. No, you cannot, for I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. There is nothing that you can do to hurt me. Can you imagine such boldness in a time when many perhaps might recant their faith and say, okay, you know, lay off. I'll just go away quietly. Just leave me alone. Not Chrysostom. Such boldness and confidence in God and in the promises of God that it didn't matter what the emperor was going to do to him. He had an answer for everything because his life was hid with Christ Jesus. If God is for us, who can be against us. We do not need to fear anyone. No one can hurt or harm us. Paul does not mention any particular individual here in the text, but the implication is that because God is for us, in order for us to be robbed of our salvation, that person would have to be greater than God himself. And we know that there is no person greater than God himself. And that is why the question is rhetorical. Because God is both the giver and the sustainer of our salvation. God gives us the gift. He sustains the gift in us. And that is why David is able to declare in Psalm 27.1 that the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And again he says later that the Lord of hosts, the Lord of battle, is with us. He's ready to engage with us when we are in Christ. Other people cannot remove us from the security that God provides for us. Satan, though he accuses us, though he might sorely try us, he cannot take away our standing of grace, of salvation in the Lord Jesus. God will not take away our salvation. And if anyone can take away salvation... It would have to be the one who gives it. And God promises no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so we need to remember the gospel. And that's why the Apostle Paul reminds them of it in verse 34. Paul tells them that the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross was not only the foundation of our salvation, but also the security of our salvation. It's based on God. It's based on the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus himself says in John 14, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I, have, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. As one commentator says, Jesus makes no allowance or provision for any of his people to be lost again. We've been saved, eternally saved. It's a wonderful truth to meditate on. And even in this passage, Paul makes no provision for the loss of salvation. And this would be a perfect time if it were possible for him to introduce that right here 
in this text, and he doesn't. The Lord's people can have great confidence that no one can threaten their security. No one can take away our standing, our position, our justification in Christ Jesus. So no people can threaten our security, but there's also no circumstances that can undermine our standing in the Lord Jesus. We see that in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now we all have events and circumstances that come along in our lives that seek to destabilize us, that get us very, very shaky and off balance in our lives. Circumstances that might get us to call into question the Lord's faithfulness, His covenant promises to us. And it doesn't take much, does it? A phone call, an email, news of something, and we can get ourselves all twisted up and all out of sorts and all caught up in our feelings instead of the promises of God. And in those times, sometimes we can even begin to question, is the Lord really for me? How can God be for me when this is happening to me? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Big trials in our lives that come along. How can God be for me when this is happening to me? We could come up with a list of trials in our own lives and events that threaten our security. The Apostle Paul did that. He talks about tribulation, that's severe adversity. He talks about distress, hopelessness. Is there any worse place to be than hopelessness? Of all the people on this planet, Christians should be the most hopeful people that there are. Persecution, physical suffering for Jesus' sake. Paul experienced much of that. Famine, not having enough food. He experienced that. Nakedness, not being adequately clothed. Danger or peril, being exposed to dangerous situations. We see Paul talking about that all over the place. And the sword being killed. People that wanted to take his life because he was preaching the gospel. And Paul tells them to not be surprised if they have to endure suffering for Jesus' sake. And Paul is not talking secondhand. These are not pious platitudes. This is the experience of the life of the Apostle Paul. He endured suffering for the sake of Christ. And indeed, he says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 12, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's the lot of the faithful Christian to be persecuted. And this happened very early on in the life of the Apostle Paul. You remember his conversion in Acts chapter 9. And then you remember he's in Damascus and he is, he is speaking in the synagogue, preaching the Son of God, the text says, preaching Christ as the Son of God. And the Jewish people there say, wow, this is a wonderful message, Paul. Why don't you tell us more? Come over to my place for dinner. No, they are plotting immediately to kill him. So he escapes, and he goes to Jerusalem. And there he's speaking with Hellenist Jews. Those are Greek-speaking Jews. And again, they want to kill him. They're plotting to kill him. 
So that is the lot of the Apostle Paul right from the get-go. He's saved miraculously and then he suffers continually throughout his life. But the events and the circumstances as trying as they are in his life, as trying as they might be, as hurtful as they might be in our lives, as unsettling as they are, never can separate us from the love of God. They draw us to God. They draw us closer to God. And so neither people nor circumstances can threaten our security in the Lord Jesus Christ. This, again, are truths that we need to remember. You've heard, you've read these things. But lay hold of these things. We have the ultimate victory over everything. Everything. We are the ultimate victors in everything. I hate losing. I can remember when I was initially converted, one of the things that got me to, to, uh, to rethink Christianity and to think about salvation was the end of the book of Revelation. <clears throat> now, back in the day, I had long hair and I was into heavy metal rock bands. And one of the things that a particular rock band would speak about was the book of Revelation. So I thought, well, if this band that I enjoy talks about the book of Revelation, surely that can't be harmful for me to begin to read. Was I ever wrong? And so I picked it up in the last few chapters of the book of Revelation because I didn't, didn't want to read the whole thing. You just skip to the end, like those book studies you do in high school. Just go to the end and just conclude everything. And what I found there, that I was a big loser. Big, big loser. And I was ultimately going to lose everything. Eternity. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? We are the ultimate victors. Verse 37. Know in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. More than conquerors. Because God both saves and keeps us. We do more than endure and survive. Do you ever feel like that's all you're doing in your life? Just clinging? Just enduring and surviving? The truth is we are more than conquerors. And the reality is that Paul was a man of exceptional perspective. And that's often what we lose when we are under trial and suffering. We lose perspective. What was Paul's perspective? eternity. He had an eternal perspective. He was looking to reward. He was looking to labor to win, to win the prize of the upward calling in Christ Jesus. He labored for a reward far greater. He knew that he was more than a conqueror. We are more than conquerors because the reward in heaven far surpasses anything that this world has to offer. We saw that earlier in the text where Ferd was, really, was, was reading that Christ offers us more than this world offers us. And we see in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 17 that our momentary light affliction, momentary light affliction, think of what Paul went through, think of what you have gone through, and yet he calls it momentary. It's fleeting, it's passing away, and it's a light affliction that produces for us an eternal weight of glory Far beyond all comparison. Far beyond all comparison. Everything that we might stack up and add up on the one side compared to what Christ offers in eternity, it's what Paul calls rubbish 
in Philippians 3. That's a text I was supposed to be preaching tonight, but I decided to preach this text instead and to look into these truths, and we'll save those other great nuggets for another time. But far beyond all comparison, and that is one thing, and my heart goes out to the youth here and and for young people here where the world just tantalizes and Satan tantalizes with the things of this world, and we don't have an eternal perspective. We clutch and we grab at things that are present that we can see that tantalize in the here and now and we forfeit those blessings. And so Paul reminds us that our afflictions are momentary. They are light and they produce for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. I don't profess to know everything that that all means. I think it is a wonderful verse. And I think it might take eternity to unpack all that it means. But it is a great truth for us to meditate upon when we are under affliction. That these things that we are going through are passing away. The things that we see are passing away. And those things we don't see are eternal. And they hold great reward for us. So just a few other points as we wind down our time here in our last five or so minutes as we look at this. This text answers for us a lot of the great truths that people ask. Can I lose my salvation? People always want to know that, right? Can I lose my salvation? Well, this text reminds us, no, we cannot. Verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Again, union with Christ, so very, very important. And then that verse 30, we see there, That we are predestined, we're called, we're justified, we're glorified. The golden chain. There's no gaps. There's no missing links in that chain. That God begins that work and he will see to it through glorification. There is no condemnation. There is no separation from the love of God. Can we have comfort in our hours of death? As we all face the prospect of death, can we be comforted by this passage? Yes, we can be. Can we go to someone's bedside and read these truths to them and comfort them in their time of death? Yes, we can. We see that in verse 33, 34, 38, 39. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. I love the way the Puritan Richard Sibbs puts it. Death is only a grim porter to let us into a stately palace. I love that. Death is but a grim porter to let us into a stately palace. It is the Jordan that we cross and we go into and God leads us into those green pastures of eternity. How can we know that our prayers are heard by God? Well, this passage reminds us that as weak and as feeble as our prayer life might be, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. Christ himself intercedes for us. Amazing truths that we see. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. I began by talking about being in distress, uh, distress and, and despondency and depression. And John Bunyan, the Puritan, found himself 
in that state, deeply depressed, wondering if he could ever go on, clinging by his fingernails, as we sometimes do, worrying about the future, when this text spoke to him and reminded him of the promises of God. He says, I remember that I was sitting in a neighbor's home. I was very, very sad when that word came suddenly to me. If God is for us, who can be against us? Oh, what a tremendous help that was to me. Remembering the promises of God, that God is for us. Are you struggling? Are you downcast tonight, wondering if you can go on, wondering if God is even for you? You know the phrase, but have you laid hold of the promise that God is for you? Now, when I was studying for ordination and going through all those different exams and going studying for presbytery and doing all that, it was, it was I must say, trying but fun. And there is a sense in which I miss the studying for all of those exams. Because it was all worthwhile. It was all worth it. It's not like those high school courses you take or college courses where the material, you just never are going to use it. It's not worthwhile studying. It's just, what is even this stuff? Like you can't wait to get it finished. That's not the case with the, what I was studying. It was all very worthwhile and I appreciate it very much. I'm the better for it. But in one of my papers, I was doing a, a word study on the, the Hebrew word for ark that we see in the Old Testament. And we see that, of course, in Genesis, in the account with Noah. We see that in verse 14. Make yourself an ark, the Lord says to Noah, of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. Now that uh, that word translated ark in the Hebrew is only used here in chapters 6 through 9 in Genesis. And then it's also used at the beginning of the book of Exodus for baby Moses, that little basket that he's placed in the river. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket, that's the same word as the word ark, made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. And she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. The basket in which Moses was placed and laid and then later lifted out and with reference to Noah and the vessel in Genesis 6 to 9 are the only two places where this word is used. And the connection between the two events is quite remarkable and unmistakable and appears to be intentional by the author to bridge those two. Noah would not have survived, Peter tells us, that Noah was preserved, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Noah is preserved with his family in the ark. In the floodwaters, Noah has no ability to direct that vessel. He didn't have an engine and sails and all these different things to direct him to the port of call that he was going to. He was cast out on these seas, on these high waters, and it was only God's preservation that he was leaning upon. The bare promises of God in his hours of distress. In a similar way, 
The infant Moses is placed in the basket on the river, completely reliant on God's special care and preservation. Think about that. God's promises, covenant promises, God, the covenant-keeping God, God's promises are in a basket on a river. God's covenant promises to Noah are adrift in these high waters. Noah doesn't know where he's going. He doesn't know where he's going to land. He just knows that God is going to preserve and take care of him. And that is the type of faith that we need in our hour of distress and depression and weakness and despondency. To lay hold of the bare promises of God. That God will preserve us supernaturally, miraculously possibly even. Just as he did in those two events in our Old Testament. The ark becomes a picture of salvation for us. Of preservation for us. That is pictured for all of those who are in Christ. Noah went into the ark knowing that he was not only going to survive, but he was going to thrive because when those flood waters were to recede, he would lay hold of the covenant keeping God's promises in his life. That God is for him. And God is for us. And he was never more for us than he was on the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you ever doubt God's love for you, Cast your eyes upon the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ and see the sufferings that Christ went through to atone and propitiate the wrath of God on our behalf. Are you in Christ tonight? Then rejoice. Rejoice in the covenant-keeping God that God is for you. He will keep all of his promises for you. Matthew Henry states that God is for us. All of his attributes are for us. His promises for us. All that he is and has and does and is for his people. He performs all things for them. He is for them even when he seems to act against them. And if so, who can be against us? Let Satan do his worst. He is chained. Let the world do its worst. It is conquered. Who then dares fight against us while God himself is fighting for us? We cannot lose. Let's pray. Oh God, we do thank you that you are a covenant-keeping God, that it does not depend upon us, that entirely you will keep covenant with us, your people, because we are in Christ. And if there are any here that are outside of Christ, I pray, oh God, that you would draw them in. Pray and ask that you would bless This congregation here, bless these people, these people who are leaning and looking to you to perhaps do the miraculous and deliver them. We pray, O God, and ask that you would deliver them in your time. And we know that you will because you keep covenant with us. In Christ's name, amen.